This is Seeger Gray and Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers has announced a new initiative to encourage folks to get vaccinated. It isn't more cream puffs. Residents who received their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine before Labor Day will receive a $100 Visa gift card. The card will be available to folks 12 and up who get their first dose by September 6th. Those who want a gift card will need to apply in advance. You can do that online at 100.wisconsin.gov. About half of all Wisconsinites, that's nearly 3 million people, have completed their COVID vaccine series. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,290 cases per day. Refugees from Afghanistan have begun arriving at Wisconsin's Fort McCoy. Located just east of La Crosse, the first Afghan refugees arrived at the base yesterday. It's currently unknown how many refugees the military base will receive, reports the Associated Press. But the last time the base hosted refugees in the 1980s, it housed about 14,000 Cubans fleeing Fidel Castro's government. Several redistricting lawsuits are rolling in as the fight over drawing the state's next maps heats up. Today, three redistricting lawsuits were filed in state and federal courts spanning the spectrum of political views. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty filed a lawsuit before the state Supreme Court. Meanwhile, voting rights groups filed their own lawsuit in federal court. The lawsuits are brought against Wisconsin's Bipartisan Elections Commission. It's likely that the Republican-led legislature and Democrat Governor Tony Evers will not reach a deal on new maps, leaving the battle over redistricting to be fought in the courts. Whether state or federal courts will lead the way in the redistricting fight, though, is still unclear. The results are in. Colectivo coffee workers can now unionize. The initial vote to unionize the Milwaukee-based chain of cafes was held in April. That vote ended in a tie, 99-99, to with several contested ballots. Today, the National Labor Relations Board opened up those contested ballots for another count, and all of the contested ballots were in favor of unionizing, bringing the final vote tally to 106 for unionizing to 99 against. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW, Local 494, congratulated the workers in a statement today. The Wisconsin Republican Party has elected its new leader. On Sunday, the party's executive committee selected Paul Farrow to serve as its newest chairman. According to the Associated Press, Farrow is currently serving as the Waukesha County Executive. Prior to that role, he had stints in both the State Assembly and Senate. Farrow has his work cut out for him. The GOP is facing a two-front battle next year as they try to keep one of Wisconsin's Senate seats red and force Tony Evers out of the governor's office. UW-Madison is expanding its research on psychedelic drugs. The university is opening a new center to study the medical applications of mind-altering hallucinogens. The new center will be housed within the UW School of Pharmacy, which is also launching a new master's program in the field for this fall semester. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the UW Psychedelic Master's Program will be the first of its kind in the nation. The city of Madison is weighing a measure to ban amplified music at some outdoor street cafes. The proposal before Madison's Arts Commission this evening would ban amplified music at streeteries located within 100 feet of homes and apartment buildings. The streetery initiative allows local restaurants to expand seating to outdoor spaces. It was implemented by the city in May 2020 to allow restaurants to continue operating while observing public health precautions. 
And now on to today's top stories. Last Thursday, a, the Dane County Board approved a $160,000 grant to fund an expansion for a local conservancy. The land is located between Black Earth and Mizomini, and restoration to its natural state could help mitigate future flooding in the area. Our producer Jonah Chester fills us in on the details. The 38-acre property is currently farmland bisected by Olson Road, but in the near future it could return to its natural state, a mixture of prairies and wetland. The $160,000 grant will provide funds for the Groundswell Conservancy to purchase the property and tack it on to an adjacent 178-acre conservation area. The total cost of the land will be about $312,000. Roughly half of that comes from the county and half from the state. The area will eventually open up to outdoor activities, including biking, hunting, and hiking. But the property would provide more than just outdoor entertainment. Jim Welsh, the Groundswell Conservancy's executive director, says restoring the area could prevent future flooding in the region. Now, three years ago, there was a terrible flood in the valley that caused a lot of damage in Mesomania, and this property is just um, upstream from there. And so the more we can do to protect and manage wetlands, uh, the more we can hold back uh, rainwater um, and keep it from flooding in the valley. Welsh says that the acquisition of the property isn't a done deal yet. The Conservancy and the current landowners have entered into a purchase agreement, but the final sale hasn't been executed. Welsh says that much of the Conservancy's work depends on the willingness of landowners to either sell or let the Conservancy manage portions of their land. So sometimes we're able to, to work out uh, scenarios where we acquire um, land that was farmed but has been flooded for the past couple of years. So the farmers might not be able to use it as they did in the past. It's definitely a win-win situation because it helps farmers out, uh, helping them to concentrate on their productive lands, gives them some cash to uh, invest back in their farms, and helps the larger community by restoring these wetlands and hopefully reducing flooding. Speaking with WORT earlier today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi voiced his support for the project. Yeah, Dane County's been doing a lot of work, um, similar work to this, you know, along the creek. We had a purchase earlier this year um, up at the headwaters of Black Earth Creek, protecting that land, replanting it into prairie and having wetlands along the way. First of all, help keeps helps keep the stream cleaner, um, but it also provides for when, when we get our heavy rains for the water to soak in rather than to just run into the creek right away. It's great for the habitat. It's great for you know flood pre- prevention and mitigation, and it's just an all around all around very positive effort. If the sale goes through, the property will also connect bike paths between Middleton and Mazomany. According to the county, folks will be able to pedal from Middleton to the Wisconsin River without leaving a bike trail. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Earlier today, kids gathered at Meadow Ridge Public Library to make their own face masks for back to school. Our departing reporter, Haley Griffin, visited the event and has more. Many students in Dane County will need to mask up when they head back to school this fall. After the Madison Metropolitan School District announced mask protocols when students are inside or on transportation, many schools have followed suit. Verona, Oregon, Stoughton, Monona Grove, Wanakee, McFarland, Sun Prairie, and so on. To prepare students for these requirements, the Meadow Ridge Public Library hosted a Sew Your Own Mask event today, welcoming students to come participate. 
Elementary and middle school-aged kids gathered around craft tables, cutting their masks from large squares of fabric printed with designs ranging from red and yellow flames to scenes from Batman. Youth Services Librarian Athney McMillan Como helped facilitate this process in coordination with a volunteer and two other library staff. They hope this made masks more accessible. You know, masks are another school supply that families need this year. Um, And so I thought this was a great way to help kind of facilitate access while also teaching kids a skill and providing kind of a a hands-on experience. Kids were assisted in learning how to use many different materials, including rotary cutters, fabric, pins, and sewing machines. The fabric at today's event was donated from library staff and the Electric Needle, a sewing store located on the Beltline. This is the first mask sewing event that Meadow Ridge has facilitated. McMillan Como says that they don't know if it'll be happening again in the future, but that it's a possibility. You know, if it goes well and kids want to do it again, then absolutely. Um, You know, I try to let kids lead with what programs they want as much as possible. Um, So if they want to do it again, I definitely consider it. One kid that I talked to today was excited to make a mask with her favorite color, blue. What kind of mask do you want? I have those. Oh, you, you, blue you, mask? Ready? I have that. You want a blue mask? Is that your favorite color? Yeah. Okay. Kids were able to drop in at Meadow Ridge Public Library today anywhere from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. The event was recommended to kids ages 8 and up as to prevent any mishaps with sewing materials and machinery. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Haley Griffin. now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. One year ago today, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by a Kenosha police officer. Coming mere months after the murder of George Floyd, the shooting of Blake opened a fresh wound across the state. In Madison, Milwaukee, Kenosha, and elsewhere, protesters took to the streets to demand justice for Jacob. Earlier today, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Justin Blake, a community activist and Jacob Blake's uncle. We have been loved and prayed for as a family. Because of that, we've been able to have what we believe is a tremendous impact on Kenosha, the city, the county, and the nation because we not stop. This is not a movement. This is a lifestyle. We were doing this way before little Jake got shot, community building, uh, feeding people, uh, stop preventing violence in our community, providing jobs. These are things that some of the people that we work with, Fred Hampton, Sister Africa Porter, 
and uh, many others uh, do uh, on an everyday basis. So um, we've been blessed uh, through working with Little Jake to uh, work with even more people, to meet more people around the country as we speak, and went to the inauguration. We've been able to try to meet others that are in other cities trying to make a difference as well. We want to meet people that have skin in the game. So tell me about the the action and demonstration you organized this past weekend in Kenosha. Who all showed up? And uh, give me a bit of an on-the-ground peek into what that looked like. Well, you had uh, Dr. Umar Johnson. You had um, Fred Hampton Jr. You had Charles uh, Sims, whose father, great-grandfather, wrote some of the uh, laws that were down south, uh, Jim Crow laws that were down south, and now he's speaking against that. You had Breonna Taylor's aunt present, just kicking it from the heart about her involvement in the foundation and, um, you know, what she's doing for Breonna Taylor and how she supports and loves my big brother Jake and our family as, at large and how we are continue uh, as families to stick together and continue to fight this racism that is systemic throughout all the police stations, all the judicial systems across this nation. How's that feel to have that kind of community support? You've spent, you know, the past 12 months at protests and actions and demonstrations here in Wisconsin, but as I understand it, really across the country. As somebody who's been going pretty much nonstop for the past year, how does that how does that support make you feel? Well, we wouldn't have the energy and uh, the fight power that we do without our senior citizens that pray for us all the time as we continue to feed them and I feed the multitudes in Chicago and now up here in Milwaukee. We've been delivering food to Racine, Kenosha, and Milwaukee. So expanding that, uh, to know that we have the support of the people, it's like the Muhammad Ali moment. When Muhammad Ali was not the champion, he still was in everybody's mind. He was a people's champion. You know what I mean? And when you got that type of people power, it's nothing to be played with. You have to humble yourself. Uh, as you accept it, and and be willing to continue to be that guy that everybody trusts and supports because you're so open, because you're so real, because you're so consistent that this really is a lifestyle we're talking about and not a movement that you can turn on and off. So one year later, how's how's Jacob doing? I understand he's in the Chicago area right now, still recovering with some some family out there. He's in a tremendous amount of pain, often and always. No human being deserves to be shot seven times in the back like he was in front of his three children. He was never charged with a crime. Yet the police officer shot him was never charged with a crime himself. He's in hella pain every day. The bullets are still in him. Things were shattered. That that gives a person a spine. Uh, to be able to stand up a city wreck or walk, it's been a tragedy. And at this point, I don't have to be kind or nice or talk about it in nice ways. I'm an uncle, and I'm proud that my nephew has to live the rest of his life the way he does because of a person who acted as an individual while he had a badge on working for the city of Kenosha, which broke the civil rights of my nephew, point blank. And he has to live with not being able to engage with his son the way He's seen us engage with him when he was their age. So they didn't just hurt Jacob Blake himself. They hurt his entire family. And it wounded and has brought down a certain segment of his family. But where this limb was taken away, another limb grows somewhere else. And he's becoming stronger mentally, spiritually, and, and reflects on how everybody, when I first came up here, said, man, your nephew always had his kids with him. 
If you go to the south side of Chicago, they'll tell you every time I saw Justin Blake, his uncle, he always had his two sons with him. And to know that that got passed down to him uh, speaks for our family and our traditions. As you mentioned, um, Rustin Shesky remains of the Kenosha Police Department and, and was never even brought up on criminal charges. Now, if you could send a message directly to the folks who made that decision, the Kenosha city leaders, the Kenosha Police Department, what would it be? What would you like to tell them directly? As direct as you can be, you are racist as hell. You are a fool. You're liars. Why don't you just bring to the forefront the private organizations that you belong to that leave, but leave and, uh, uh, and basically the old Southern Guard that you brought up here to the North, they're carpetbaggers. The chief of police, the DA, the sheriff, some of the judicial system, to be able to protect the man who committed attempted murder, not to ostracize him, but to pull him in and give him every element he needed to survive the onslaught of the community coming for his dismissal. He should have been fired. He should have been indicted. And he should be in jail right now. But he's not because the powers that be in Kenosha, where racism runs through every thread of this government, the judicial system and the police system, not to mention education, employment, and the rest that these people have to deal with the city. But African-Americans, you can be engaged, shot on the spot for doing nothing other than walking down the street and no charges will be brought. What culture could live under such tyranny? It's unconscionable that you think in 2020 that African-Americans should have to live like this in this country. Recently, looking away from Kenosha, we have seen some movement on the state level here in Wisconsin, in the state capitol and amongst the state's lawmakers. Recently, earlier this month, actually, Governor Tony Evers approved bills that would, among other things, establish statewide use of force policies for police, ban chokeholds in certain cases. Those are just two of a number of bills he's he's passed in the past couple of months. Now, what's your take on these efforts, on these state level efforts, as opposed to the efforts that Kenosha city leaders or lack of effort Kenosha city leaders are taking? And what further steps do you feel state lawmakers should take to prevent future violence and future cases like what happened to Jacob? President Biden, who's been a, a disgrace to all of the families, the Floyds, the Taylors, uh, the Blake family, we helped turn the red state blue here on Wisconsin, brother. We deserve the respect for that. We deserve the respect for being a represent our nephew and the classy way we did when we stopped asking people to stop tearing up and destroying the city. We deserve a direct line, again, to President Biden to be able to make sure that our agenda is his agenda. We haven't heard anything out of him since he got into that White House that we helped put him in. If you're not offering us some type of reparation, then you're just putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot. Mr. Blake, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Big up to the red, the black, and the green unity now. What happened, brother? Peace. Jacob Blake is powerful. Jacob Blake is beautiful. Jacob Blake is a human being. Stay with me. My black is beautiful. Your black is powerful. Justin Blake is a community activist and the uncle of Jacob Blake. And the protest audio from this interview is from an August 31st, 2020 demonstration. 
With census data now in hand, Wisconsin leaders are poised to move ahead with redrawing the state's political boundaries. Concerns have been raised that Republican leaders will again push for gerrymandered maps, but a top party official is inviting public input and map fairness groups urge residents to follow through. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Going into the current redistricting cycle, Wisconsin was viewed as a state where political tension would underscore new legislative and congressional maps. A legal fine still is expected, but fair map groups say the public should take advantage of a key opportunity. Republicans who control the legislature are leading efforts to produce new political maps likely to clash with the veto power of Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Matt Rothschild of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign says while there is concern the GOP will produce a partisan-driven effort, residents should provide their own input through a platform recently announced by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Anytime citizens of Wisconsin are given an opportunity to participate in the political process, that's a good thing, and I encourage citizens to take the speaker up on his invitation. This fall, citizens can submit ideas, including their own suggested boundaries, through the Draw Your District Wisconsin website. Rothschild acknowledges Voss and GOP leaders could ignore the input, but he says the website speaks to grassroots efforts in recent years calling for fair maps, with policy researchers finding that Wisconsin Republicans produced among the most gerrymandered lines after the 2010 census. Deborah Kronmiller of the Nonpartisan League of Women Voters of Wisconsin says she's hopeful the portal is not just window dressing. She says it will give local residents the power to unify their voices by identifying communities of interest. To work with their neighbors, to work with their school districts, uh, to work with their municipality to make sure that these are the lines that are being considered. She also says anyone who submitted maps to the governor's non-binding People's Map Commission can resubmit it through the new portal. GOP leaders were not expected to consider that panel's drafts. Speaker Voss has expressed confidence the maps from his party will be signed by the governor. Aside from input, fair map advocates are renewing their push for state lawmakers to hold hearings on the latest proposal to create an independent commission to oversee the process. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government on Forward Lookout. The Past Isn't Past examines the life of the detective Alan Pinkerton, and we review two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Are you ready for Radio Roulette? WORT's news department has many volunteer positions to fill. So step right up to the Radio Roulette wheel and see what you could win with a spin. 24 Black wins you engineering for a public affair on Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. 18 Red will get you Wednesdays, 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. for a public affair and the syndicated show Leathers and Politics. Look at that! 7 Red will win you the engineer position for Thursdays, 11.30 a.m. until 2 p.m. for a public affair and the syndicated show, Letters and Politics. 13 Black will get you Thursdays, 7.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. You will engineer and help broadcast radio literature. On-air opportunities may be present as well. 
The news department is also looking for reporters, feature producers, and kiosk readers. Applicants must be fully vaccinated with a one-year commitment. We will provide all the free training you need. Engineers should have some familiarity with computers and willingness to work collaboratively. If you're interested in any of these prizes, contact Adrian Ranny at 608-321-9583 or email adrian, that's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, at wrtfm.org. For more information on these engineer opportunities, visit the wortfm.org website and click on the How to Help tab. View current volunteer opportunities. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Seeger Gray. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we sit down with ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle to scan city and county agendas to see what's up next in local government news. Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. Hey, hey, it is Monday, and we're speaking, of course, with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in city and county government. Hi, Brenda. Hey, Dylan. How are you? I'm just fine. Good to hear Good to hear your voice. So we'll start off with Dane County, usual. All these meetings are uh, virtual, unless we say otherwise. Looks like it's going to be like that for a while. Um, we're going to start off with Tuesday, 12-15. It's the Criminal Justice Council. It's Racial Disparity Subcommittee. What are they talking about, Brenda? So they are talking about ideas and input on the budget. So um, looking at, you know, upcoming year, what, what can they be uh, recommending to spend money on? And then they'll be getting some reports from the National Institute of Justice Lead Scholar Program, as well as the Community Restorative Court Update. 345 Tuesday, the Tree Board. We love that Tree Board. They are meeting in person at the Cherokee Marsh Natural Resources Area. Uh, that's in Wanakee. So, yeah, so they're going to check out a Kentucky gravel bed facility. They are. It sounds hmm. exciting. I bet you're going to go there so you can see the tour, aren't you? Well, I'm, I want to know what this Kentucky gravel is all about. And, uh, and yeah, what, yeah, what is that? I have no idea. Well, 3.45 uh, tomorrow we could find out. So what else is the tree board? You got nothing to add on the tree board? I had nothing on the tree board. We love the tree board. If you you want to check out the Kentucky Gravel Bed Facility, that's 3.45 on Tuesday. I, for one, am interested, but nothing more to add there. All right, 5.15, Public Protection Judiciary Committee. That's meeting on Tuesday, 5.15, like I said. That is virtual. So this is an important committee. What are they talking about? So um, they are talking about extending some hours for um, the Corporation Council and for the District Attorney's Office. Um, They'll also be getting a presentation from the Dane County Sheriff's Office about their various task forces, and then they will be talking about the Public Protection and Judiciary Fines and Fees Subcommittee Report. And they have been working hard on that. We know that. So They have. Yes. Uh, skipping now to Wednesday, 5.30, the Park Commission, they're, uh, they, they are meeting in person, as they have been one of the few committees, because they're meeting outside. This time it's in Walking Iron County Park's Lions Entrance. What is what? 318 Park Street in Mazamini. Hmm, cool. Yes, yeah, Walking Iron Wildlife Area. And what are they talking so, about? 
So they're talking about some grants and some easements and some, you know, sort of routine things. Um, one thing that they will be doing is they will be talking about um, some solutions for people experiencing homelessness, including potentially waiving fees in county parks and also finding some county land where uh, people who are camping in their cars might be able to do a park, uh, do, do like a car camping place for them to stay that would be legal. Because so right now in the city, that's that. very difficult to do. It is. Um, right now, it's pretty much illegal anywhere you are. You know, sometimes you can stay somewhere for 24 or 48 hours, but you always got to move your vehicle then. So we'll also be getting a bunch of presentations about the Walking Iron Wildlife Area. So if you need to know more, Dylan, there's another meeting you can go to. Yeah, I'm just, my, my week is filling up. I can tell you that much, Brenda. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right, Thursday, the Criminal Justice Council, the full body, they're meeting at 1215 virtually. And they're going to talk about uh, the sheriff's, a new policy, I think, about referring to people who are in the Dane County Jail. Is that what that's about? What else are they discussing? Yeah, there was no link, but I'm assuming that that's what it's about. Um, they'll also be talking about the Community Justice Center and what kind of recommendations they might want to make about that. Moving on to the city of Madison, uh, Monday, 530, the Plan Commission has a lengthy agenda, and that meeting is virtual. So, Wait, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of construction in town, and um, yeah, people should really head over to forwardlookout.com because this is all over the city. you got projects everywhere, from Myrtle Street to Willie to Morris. Well, we just named about four streets right next to each other practically, but it's all over the city. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, tonight they'll be looking at adopting the Odana Area Plan. That's not by Willie Street. That is out uh, by um, West Town Mall. So we'll be looking at adopting that plan. There's some reconsiderations of a bigger project at the 1800 block at East Washington Street. Again, you'll want to check the forward lookout to see once what all the other projects are. There are lots and lots of them. Um, one thing you might be interested in, um, they have um, three ordinances, or at least I know I'm interested in it. They have three ordinances at the end of the uh, night that they will be talking about. One is to create a mission camp district. One is to create a tiny house village district and to change the definition of portable shelter mission. So um, those things are all designed, again, to help uh, folks who are homeless um, have a place to live in the city of Madison that isn't currently legal. Yeah, well, explain what a portable shelter mission is, because, or what's your definition of it, since they're changing it, but um, what would you... So uh, the portable shelter mission is um, basically what they did to allow the tiny house villages that exist um, and what they are doing is they are making it easier, uh, taking away some of the restrictions that they had in place um, and making it easier to have uh, these um, mission camps and tiny house villages. All right, and we'll move on to 6 o'clock tonight, already in progress, the Madison Arts Commission. They'll be talking about arts and culture, economic recovery, and um, also taking up a, an ordinance change that... Um, I believe Alder Brian Benford is pushing forward, right? Yep. They are looking at uh, restricting live outdoor music that is uh, within 100 feet of any streetery uh, location. So if they have a streetery location um, and they um, are within 100 feet of a residential dwelling unit, they will restrict live outdoor music. Moving on, 4.30 Tuesday, the Common Council Executive Committee they're meeting, and they usually meet, don't they usually meet before the, the full council, but there's no full council meeting tomorrow. Just just the executive committee and the mayor usually attends these. Yep, exactly. Um, they're, they're having a meeting. They're going to begin an update about um, housing encampments. 
a, a, a trend that's going on this week. Um, they're also going to be getting a, an update about violence prevention and COVID-19, and then they are getting a primer on the budget. And then they'll be discussing what uh, the Common Council meeting dates will be for 2022. Wednesday, 5 p.m., the Vending Oversight Committee is meeting virtually, and it's just a sign of the times. Uh, they're right, you know, usually they have, um, it's actually a big to-do, the a yearly fall food cart review where the you know food carts are judged and it helps with uh, placement around some hot spots usually around downtown but that's not happening this year right yeah they're gonna have to cancel it um and they're still gonna allow the assignments this year to continue and they're gonna figure out what they're gonna do about that they'll also be talking then about the streeteries and they're gonna having a little bit of a review about those how that's going and probably discussing what they might recommend there as well and those those streeteries and music and just helping restaurants out that's be that that a lot of things are coming to a head there. Yeah. And you can tell Brenda's super interested. No, I'm just looking around. <laughs> it's just so funny that during COVID we made all these kinds of exceptions and some of them were permanent and some of them were not and it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. Yeah. Hey, you that's exact that's exactly what I find interesting about them. So, thank you Brenda. Yeah. And to learn more about Everything having to do with county and city government, particularly the meetings and agenda items, a very helpful resource is forwardlookout.com. So, Brenda, thank you so much for putting that together. You're welcome. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the life and times of the notorious Alan Pinkerton, founder of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long Wednesday, August 25th, marks the birth in 1819 of Alan Pinkerton, the founder of the legendary Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Pinkerton grew up in a large, poor family in Glasgow, Scotland, becoming a homeless, illiterate cooper in his teens. He joined the Radical Chartists, a mass working-class movement seeking universal male suffrage to get jobs and living wages. He quickly became one of the group's strongest advocates. They collected 1.3 million petition signatures in support of their demands, which were ignored by Parliament. In 1839, Pinkerton traveled hundreds of miles for a march on Newport. 10,000 gathered at the local Westgate Hotel, battling British troops with homemade weapons leaving dozens killed or wounded. Captured leaders were sent to penal colonies. The rest, including Pinkerton, escaped with arrest warrants. He married Joan Carfrey in 1842, and despairing over making changes in Britain, they moved to Chicago. He set up a barrel business with the help of his friends. In 1847, he accidentally found a counterfeit ring, a group that often preyed on immigrants. Pinkerton returned with locals and deputies who descended on the camp arresting the counterfeiters and destroying their equipment. He impressed the locals and became a permanent sheriff's deputy. In 1850, Pinkerton founded a group to defend westbound cargo trains, and the Pinkerton National Detective Agency was born. The National was a vain claim, but important to clients. Pinkerton plainclothes detectives primarily did entrapment of the railroad's own employees, catching those who took bribes offered for free rides or access to cargo. In 1860, Pinkerton had six wealthy railroad companies as retainers. 
Pinkerton became wealthy and invested his gains in the Underground Railroad. His house was a way station. He supported John Brown in the run-up to Harper's Ferry. Just before the start of the Civil War, Pinkerton claimed to foil an assassination attempt on then-President-elect Lincoln, but it seems doubtful the threat was real. Pinkerton and an employee, Kate Warren, the first woman detective, snuck Lincoln out in disguise on a train a day earlier than planned and encountered no trouble. Pinkerton went on to work with General John McClellan as a spy scouting Confederate troop movements, but he was found to often exaggerate the strength of the Confederates. He used his wartime connections to expand the business after the war. His company also captured a number of vicious criminals, but failed to get Jesse James. Though much of the anti-labor work occurred after his death in 1884, it was there from day one at his company, with his work focused on stings of low-level railroad workers. Hired the charters to defend his position. He claimed U.S. workers were unduly influenced by foreign ideologies of socialism and anarchism. Strikes undermined the true spirit of independent workers, he said, and the strikers weren't using the right way to benefit themselves. He did not admit his similar motivations when he stormed the Westgate Hotel in 1839. In the 1870s, the Pinkertons created groups of armed men for the bosses. In 1872, a Pinkerton infiltrated the Molly Maguires, a secret organization of coal miners in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. The Molly Maguires were accused of many crimes against the coal bosses, including arson and murder. Pinkerton's agents' sometimes dubious testimony led to trials and the conviction and hanging of ten men. In the 1877 Great Rail Strike, the Pinkertons were violent strike breakers. In 1884, Pinkerton died, and his two sons took over the business. They went on to lose popular and legal support after a 300-man assault on the Homestead Strikers in 1892. Pinkertons were vastly outnumbered and defeated by the Strikers. In the end, 16 people died, three Pinkertons. The Pinkertons surrendered and ran through a gauntlet of strikers on their way back to the barges. Soon, anti-Pinkerton laws were passed on the state and national level. They never recovered their prestige or standing, but still exist as a company of hired guards. And that is our story for today. For The Past Isn't Past, I'm Harry Richardson. p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today marks one year since Jacob Blake Jr. was shot seven times in the back by the white Kenosha police officer Rustin Shesky. The assault paralyzed Blake from the waist down. It also set off nights of anger in Kenosha, vented by vandalizing downtown buildings and setting fires while the police patrolled from inside armored vehicles. And it led to two tragic deaths after 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse shot two protesters dead and injured a third. 
In this archival report, the Blake family calls for peaceful protests. Helena White traveled to Kenosha last August for the Justice for Jacob rally. The Blake family had called for a peaceful protest Saturday, and they were rewarded with a powerful demonstration of community support. Because the Kenosha County Sheriff had closed all the highway exits to Kenosha to prevent people from supporting the protests, I had to drive south from Racine to enter the town. But once there, it was easy to find a large crowd made up of black, white, and Latinx people, black Muslims, black Panthers, members of the Sikh faith, mothers pushing kids in strollers, fathers holding babies, assembled on a blocked off street. I spoke to Jackie, who described the Kenosha police. They always use police brutality. They don't try to come and talk to you and find out what's going on. They're very offensive, as if they fear us. Fear us for what? But it's time for a change. And stop sweeping it under the rug and acting like you don't know what's going on. You know exactly what's going on in this city. You cause these problems, and you continue to act like you don't see it. Everybody in the world saw that video live. Everybody saw what happened on that Sunday morning. This needs to stop, and it needs to stop now. The Blake family led the march several blocks to the Kenosha County Courthouse while the crowd chanted. In the nearby park, over 1,200 people assembled in front of a stage guarded by black Muslims and listened to an impassioned array of speakers who included Jacob Blake's sister, Atitra Weidman. Weidman had a message for the Kenosha police. I want to send a special thank you to Kenosha Police Department for showing natural colors. Yes! Say that! And I want to thank you again for recharging my melanin. Say it! And since we're doing things our way today, I'm an artist. So I'm going to share some of my work with y'all. And I wrote this piece just for today. I am the keeper. I will not sleep. And I don't need to eat. My belly is full with my ancestors' pain. I am the keeper. Now watch me reign. Hear my roar. I am the keeper. I don't scare easily. I'm pulling up to your door. Congresswoman Gwendolyn Moore promoted the Justice in Policing Act, which would outlaw racial profiling, chokeholds, and no-knock warrants. And I'm the mother of two black men, and I shiver every time they walk out the door, walking while black, talking while black, thinking while black. And it's time for us to pass that Justice in Policing Act, which I looked up to offer. The state's first black lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, also spoke. But unfortunately, we still deal with some of the same challenges that our people were dealing with decades ago. But we're here today to say no. And when I look at this crowd, I see different races, different genders, different sexual orientation, different religions, people who are standing up all across the state, all across this country, demanding the justice that we deserve. And justice is a bare minimum. Justice should be guaranteed to everybody in this country. 
there was an emotional message from Jacob's father, Jacob Blake Sr. My son, the other day when I was in the hospital, give me a second. He, he grabbed my hand. He stole my hand. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. You know, I love you. I said, man, listen, I love you more than anything in the world. Then my baby said, Daddy, why did they shoot me so many times? I said, baby, they weren't supposed to shoot you at all. I know, I know there's a lot of parents out here in this crowd. You cannot imagine what it feels like to look at your baby paralyzed from the waist down, shackled, shackled. Where was my son going? They already put him in the bed. What was the shackle for? We suffered and still suffer because there's two justice systems. There's one for that white boy that walked down the street and murdered those two people and blew that other man's arm off. And then there is a justice system for mine. That justice system for us does not work out too well for us. From the Justice for Jacob Blake protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for WORT Local News, this is Helena White. That was contributor Helena White's piece from one year ago after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two very different movies, The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot, and Swan Song. My grandfather used to tell me stories all about this one soldier. As he got older, the stories got stranger. Some I believed, others I don't know. That was a clip from the trailer for The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot, written and directed by Robert Sikowski. I would say the title says it all, but that's only partly true. Those things happen, but nothing is done in a campy way. Rather, our story is straightforward, if bizarre, more like a good old-fashioned comic book. Calvin Barr, played by the always watchable Sam Elliott, is sitting in a quiet bar in a funk, suddenly recalling his youth portrayed by an adequate Aiden Turner in World War II. He's on a special assignment. The bartender asks him what's wrong, but Calvin shrugs him off. He walks slowly to his car, looking a little fragile or maybe a little tipsy, but he still has it as he makes quick work of three would-be carjackers. Calvin, slightly annoyed, drives calmly past a speeding police car, sirens wailing, returns home, and has more flashbacks. He recalls the love of his life who got away, Maxine, a winning role by Caitlin Fitzgerald as a young schoolteacher. Calvin may be a capable soldier, but as a boyfriend, he's pretty clueless. One has trouble imagining a young Sam Elliott messing this up, but... Anyway, we see Calvin as a lonely old man, living a quiet life except for that attempted car theft, filled with regret for things done, killing Hitler, it didn't seem to change anything, to the things he didn't do, like propose to Maxine. 
and then he gets a visit from two unnamed strangers, an FBI agent played by Ron Livingston, who knows his legend, and a Canadian-mounted policeman, Rizwan Manji, in desperate need of someone to kill Bigfoot. All in all, a pretty good movie, well-grounded in a very gritty way by Sam Elliott, who would be the main reason to see the movie. Like I said, no camp. Our next movie is also about an older man living in a small town, but there the comparison ends. I'm surprised you still remember me. Who could forget the Liberace of Sandusky? That was a clip from the trailer for Swan Song, written and directed by Todd Stevens. Stevens, who's gay, has done a number of gay-themed movies. This one seemed fairly personal. It's set in his conservative hometown of Sandusky, Ohio, based on a true icon, Pat Pitsenbarger, a flamboyant out-gay man who was the leading hairstylist in town. Stevens knew Pitsenberger. It's a small town. Pitsenbarger is played by the great German character actor Udo Kier. Kier is gay. He does an exceptional job of making Pat an incredibly sympathetic but not sentimentalized character. Our movie opens with Pat at a nursing home, bored out of his mind, dreaming of his past. His biggest diversion is secretly smoking fancy cigarettes. There's some amusing scenes with a fellow patient, who he smokes with and compliments on her beautiful hair. Things change when Pat is visited by the lawyer of his biggest former client, Rita Parker Sloan, a local socialite. He bears sad news. Rita has passed on. He offers Pat $25,000 to fulfill one of her last requests, that Pat does her hair one last time. Pat, saddened but bitter over Pat's mistreatment, refuses, hissing, bury her with bad hair. But the next morning, Pat reconsiders. He could use the money and something to do. He's soon off with his cash and his rings. Each one tells a story. He escapes from the nursing home. Pat is soon off on a cross-town journey into his past for one last job. Along the way, Pat meets a number of locals as he hitchhikes into town, does some shopping, and bittersweet reminiscing. He gets a ride from a woman with Jesus is my co-pilot on her air freshener. He gives her the short version of his story. She passes his hand sympathetically as he gets out of her car at the cemetery, to visit his former lover's grave. He is moved to tears. He heads downtown and ends up in a clothing shop where a middle-aged woman remembers the time he dyed her hair blonde when she was 19. Pat is surprised that she remembers him. Incredibly, he remembers her, too. She shows him a lime suit, and he tries it on in the dressing room. She asks him how it feels, and he says, I'm not sure I can still pull this off. Of course he does, and we see a warm, beautiful film with a sad but fitting ending. For WORT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. It was our reporter Haley Griffin's last day in the newsroom. Congratulations to her and our other reporters this summer. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Helena White. Jonah Chester produced this newscast, Victor Calzoni engineered the show, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>